Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, so that we may be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that in it we can know you truly. We ask this morning as we wrestle with this part of the letter written to the church in Galatia, Lord, that you would make it living and active to us, that your spirit would be at work, convicting us, changing us, challenging us, encouraging us, so that we might serve you more fully, reflecting your glory in this world. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, please do keep uh, your Bibles open. It's always good to make sure that uh, the, pre- the preacher is actually behaving himself and preaching from the text. Uh, that's a good thing to do. Uh, now, one of my favorite movies uh, of all times, I think, and probably I don't think I will be alone uh, in this. Do you recognize the opening scene? The Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers, Jake and Elwood. And if you're familiar with it, you've got this fantastic R&B music playing in the background as Jake, uh, uh, Jake Blues is walked uh, to release. Uh, and uh, the movie starts with his brother Elwood picking him up in a, uh, in a cop car, which Jake finds a little bit um, disconcerting at the time. Uh, but it starts with the release of Jake from prison. His penalty to society has been paid And then the whole movie is the then what? If you know the movie, you'll know that the whole movie is actually about how he ends up exactly where he started uh, back in prison. But for us as Christians, 
we can often think of salvation as being delivered from, as being saved from. And I know for me as a, as a young Christian, I often thought, okay, I've been saved, now what? what what's the next step? What's the, the thing? And sometimes I think we can focus so much on what we have been saved from that we actually overlook what we have been saved for. Let me say that again. I think we overlook what we have been saved for because we're focused on this, what we have been saved from. So this morning we're going to unpack it. We've got four, four headings. We've got saved, saved from, saved for, and then the life of salvation. So if you're taking notes, you'll find that those are in the outline that you would have received at the door, uh, and they are there. We are saved. Now, I've been talking about the fact that Christianity is really uh, offering a life of blessing. It offers blessing in the face of curse. It offers hope in the face of despair, mercy in the face of judgment, forgiveness in the face of wrath, purpose in the face of meaninglessness, ultimately life in the face of death. We have been saved. We've been saved from as well as saved for. I want to briefly just recap at the start of our time this morning what that looks like. How did God do this? And this is what the Christian gospel is all about. This is what the Apostle Paul has been defending. The fact that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's blessing comes. How does God save us? He saves us through Christ. And you might remember that I've been hitting you with uh, some of the great alone statements. Okay, we are saved through Christ alone. The Apostle Paul is bending over backwards to explain that. We are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ only. We're not saved through obedience to the law. We're not saved by faith in other gods. Paul tells us, or, or the, letter, uh, the, the book of Acts tells us quite explicitly, this is actually Peter, he says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is Christ alone. There is not multiple roads leading to the same destination. The Bible is clear that there is but one road, and that is Christ. Christ alone. Grace alone. The Bible tells us that it is unearned, it is free gift, it is not by our effort, it is God's gracious gift. It is grace alone and it is received by faith alone. This is one of those things, I find it helpful just to keep this in my head, that Christianity is ultimately, it is received, salvation is received, not achieved. It is received, not achieved. It is not something that we earn. It's not something that we strive for, that we are good enough for, that we merit in some way. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. It tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And the Apostle Paul tells us this in this 
this verse uh, in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, when the time had fully come, God's plan, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, born of a woman, truly human, born under the law, fully obedient to that law, to redeem those, to rescue from slavery those who are under the law. That is how Paul is speaking here, that God has sent Christ and it is Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone that sees us saved, that opens the door to blessing. So that's our first point. Bit of a recap, really, but an important one, I think. And we are saved from, Paul, here in this passage, he outlines a number of things that we are saved from. Firstly, he tells us we're saved from the constraint of the law. Okay, this is a little bit of a weird argument that Paul goes on with, uh, but uh, it's important to recognize he actually builds this argument. Okay, but he tells us that before the coming of this faith, that's the Lord Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. The law was our guardian. Uh, literally, the word here that uh, is translated guardian is the word that was used for a, um, when a family had school-aged kids, so kids in their minority. They would have a slave or maybe a freed person uh, whose job was to supervise those children, kind of like a nanny, uh, but with a, with a bit of biff, okay? Uh, not only their job was to actually keep the children in line, uh, to protect them, yes, uh, but also to constrain them, to make sure that those children played by the rules when necessary to punish them. Uh, it was called the pedagogue, uh, and the NIV is just translated as guardian here. But the idea is that you're a kid and you need someone to look after you. And Paul is saying the law was like that. When we were immature, when we were underage, the law was there to keep us in check. It's an image of maturity. It's kind of like this. When you're at school, uh, almost every moment of your day is programmed, yes? You go from class to class to class, you're told where to be, you're told what subjects are coming, you, all this kind of stuff, yes? And then all of a sudden, you graduate and you might go to university. And uh, one of the things you learn very quickly about university is no one cares if you show up or not. Uh, they don't care if you hand in the assignments, they don't care about... As long as they're getting paid, don't care about very much at all. You go from a very tightly constrained environment where they say, you're immature, we need you to obey the rules, you've got to stay between the lines, you've got to play by the rules, to a situation of freedom. A freedom where you have a choice. A freedom where you can work out where you are best able to spend your time, whether sitting in that lecture or sitting there at home listening it to one and a half speed. You can work out which is the best one for you. Uh, is the time best spent playing Call of Duty or um, doing your physiology? It's up to you. You've got the freedom. You've got the freedom. And this is what Paul is saying. When, when they were immature... Before Christ had come, the law hemmed them in. The law narrowed it down. But now Christ has come, they are free. But Paul, we need to remember, hasn't given us the whole picture. 
and he builds his argument. So he says, yes, the law was like this pedagogue. He was like the, the constrainer. But what else? Okay. Paul then builds. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. What I'm saying, he says, is that as long as the heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir by, is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So you might own everything, but the trustees still get to kick you around. They set the rules. You're under custodians. The law was there and it constrains you. And Paul actually says, and the difference between that constraining and slavery, not very much. And the law has a role to constrain, but it doesn't change us. It doesn't transform us. It doesn't actually make us want to do the right thing. In fact, Paul will actually argue that it actually makes us want to break it. Think about for those who had little children, what is the worst thing you can say to a little child? I don't want you to touch that. Okay? What does the child want to do instinctively? They want to touch it. They, they, just, they just have to touch it. It's there. The law does not give them the power to obey. The law is kind of like this cage. Okay, the law might protect the man from the lion, but it doesn't change the lion's heart. Okay, the, the lion can't eat the man, but given a chance, he would, wouldn't he? And the law kind of functions a bit like that. It constrains us, it points out, it maybe limits us, but it will never transform us. And the danger thing is that Paul then builds on this and he says that sin distorts the law. So even though it was there restraining you, even though it was there confining you and telling you how to walk the path, the sin, the rebellion in our heart meant that we turned the law into something it was never meant to be. The Jewish people turned the law into a self-salvation project. Paul talks about this in Romans 10. He says he can testify about the Jewish nation that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So what's he saying? These people love God's law, but they're using it wrong. They're using it to try and get brownie points, to try and make the grade. And Paul tells us that that is as good as slavery. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says these words. He says, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now, there's lots of debate about what those elemental spiritual forces are. They sound pretty funky, don't they? The one thing you want to know about them is they are spiritual forces opposed to God. And what's Paul saying is that the sin in our heart took the law, something that was good, and it enslaved us. It bound us in opposition to God. 
And so when grace comes, when salvation comes, we are not only freed from the constraint of the law, we're freed from the slavery that comes with it, and we're freed also from condemnation. Because what the law does is it identifies our guilt. It reveals the offence. It dictates the penalty. A couple of years ago, I was uh, called to pick up one of my children from school. Uh, they'd gone to the sick bay and I was summoned. Uh, I was preoccupied. This was when I was living and working in the hills. Uh, I was there and I've got all these things I've got to do. And uh, I'm driving down the freeway thinking about, oh, I can't believe I've got to go to school, da-da-da-da-da, not noticing. Have you noticed those really tricky speed signs that they change? Okay, and so I'm just in cruise control. I'm just motoring on down the freeway. And then I get this lovely little letter from the state government. Uh, Dear Cameron, uh, on this day at this place, when the speed limit had been dropped by 20 kilometres an hour, you were doing 11 kilometres over the speed limit. Okay. I'd like to say I was still doing 81 in what I thought was a 90 zone. How good am I? But no, it was a 70 zone. It was a 70 zone. It says you've broken the law and here's the penalty. You can make a nice donation to the state government of about $400. It was like, oh, at least it was only 11 and not 16. That would have been much more expensive, much more expensive. But you see, the law identified my sin and told me the penalty. But we are freed from the law and the condemnation. What does Paul write? Verse 4, chapter 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He came and he lived perfectly. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And in our place, Jesus Christ took our penalty as our substitute the one who deserved nothing but blessing paul tells us in chapter three became a curse for us so that we might inherit the blessing promised to abraham promised to the nations through abraham jesus came and delivered us from condemnation but this is only one half of the story I love a good movie, and one of my uh, favourite books, I was okay with the movie, but uh, Lord of the Rings, okay, anyone seen, anyone, anyone actually read Lord of the Rings? Okay, there's a few people, this is good, this is good. I've read Lord of the Rings, I think, at least 15 times, and one of the things that really kind of annoys me about the Lord of the Rings is I want to know what happens next, okay, and there's these, if you're, if you're a complete Tolkien nerd, kind of a bit like me, you'll read the appendices. Has anyone ever read the appendices? Yeah, there's a few. Okay, okay. And you'll, you'll hear about how Arwen kind of fades away in the, in the mists and the forests and there's all that sort of stuff after Aragorn dies. And, but I want to know how it, how it goes on because the Lord of the Rings is a story of salvation, isn't it? And then there's the next. And even Frodo and Gandalf, then they go off into the west on their boat you don't know what's coming. And it's the same with us. We can focus so much on the, what we've been saved from that we miss just how incredible what we've been saved for is. And Paul here, 
He gives us a glimpse, like those little appendices. I wish he gave us more. But I don't think Paul had the words to describe it. But let's dive in. What, does, what are we saved for? We're saved for belonging. Here in verse 26 of chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul here is saying that we belong. I don't know if you feel that. Do you feel like you belong? Is there a place where you belong? Some of us have moved. I moved interstate and I had to get used to all you crazy South Australians with your weird King's English. You know, we speak the proper English. We speak, we say, we plant and we dance in France. And, and I've taught myself to say it. That's because I love you guys and I want to do that. I want to fit in. But I had to get used to it. I had to learn what a, a fruit chock was. Like this, this abominable, I actually kind of like them now. It's, it's weird, isn't it? Uh, but when I first came, as soon as I opened my mouth, people went, nah, don't belong. <laughs> Imagine, I, I know friends who, um, who've moved into state, you know, internationally. Uh, there's one here down the back corner, uh, Andrew, who, uh, who goes home to New Zealand and they all go, you sound like an Australian, you don't belong here. And I, to me, every time he opens his mouth and says, fish and chips and socks and all that kind of stuff, uh, I think, you don't belong here, mate. No, you do belong, you do belong. But we know what this is. You know what it's like. You walk into a workplace and you're the new kid. Sometimes they can be really hostile. You don't belong. You walk into someone else's family gathering. I've had the privilege over years, of, a couple of times, spending key moments with families. And while I love being included, it's also quite evident that I don't belong because I'm not part of this. But here, Jesus has accomplished something that meets our deepest need. We want to belong, don't we? And when we don't, it really affects us. And Paul here says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Through faith in Christ, you belong. You belong as God's children, part of God's family. And this is in Christ. I used this illustration a couple of weeks ago, but this is a really big theological term. Uh, the, the boffins, the theological boffins, will call this union in Christ or un union with Christ. And one of the things the Bible teaches us is that the blessings of God come to us as we are united to Christ by faith. So as our faith is in him, it joins us to him. It's kind of like having a piggyback. Here you have this mum who's going to piggyback this boy over the river. What does he do? Nothing other than hold on. What does Christ do? He does everything. And our faith, which is a gift, Ephesians 2 tells us, is like holding on to Jesus. He accomplishes what we cannot and through his work, 
heaven is open to us. Heaven is open to us. We are united with him. And it says here, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Because he is the one that belongs. Who's the true son of God? It's him. But through faith and being united to him, we become God's children. It's kind of like uh, you see in those movies where uh, you've got the, the person who's just the insider. And you get the, often it's the nerdy guy on the side and he's just like, yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> you know, it's that association. I'm putting myself with this person and with Christ, with that association that faith brings, we get to walk into heaven's throne room. Not as imposters, but as sons and daughters. Now, the false teachers had been saying, no, 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 no. You've got to be Jewish. You've got to have at least the marks of being Jewish. You've got to have the, the dietary rules and the uh, circumcision and observe the special days and those kind of things. And Paul is saying, no. And we think about our society. Those who are on the inside, how do you get in? It's generally by merit, isn't it? How do you belong? You've got to be born into the right group. You've got to have the right skills. You've got to have enough money. You've got to look the right way. Almost every level, our society works on merit. Okay? But what does Jesus, how does Jesus change it? What does he save us for? It's actually his merit, not our merit. And our faith, our faith which God has given to us, it brings us in and makes us part of God's family. It's a great leveler. Am I better than someone else because I'm in God's family and they're not? No. It's not my achievement. Grace and faith are great levelers. Now, I just want to take a quick aside, just because this is um, possibly one of the most abused uh, Bible verses uh, in recent history. Um, Galatians 3.29, you'll see it there. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Often this is picked up to actually say that uh, gender distinctions have been completely erased uh, by uh, Christianity. And so, therefore, no difference between male and female. Okay? Can I just say, that doesn't actually do justice to the passage. What's the passage talking about? It's saying God doesn't let women in and exclude men or let men in and exclude women. He says that, that barrier doesn't work. He doesn't let Jews in and exclude Gentiles. He lets them both in by faith. He lets men and women in by faith. He lets slaves and free in by faith. Whatever division, salvation is open to all. We might erect barriers, but God doesn't. Because it doesn't depend on our performance. We belong because Christ belongs and our faith is in him. It's one of the things I love about the Anglican church. You might find that odd for those who know uh, me, me. This is Article 20 of our Statement of Faith, the 39 Articles. It is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. So in other words, the Bible is our guide. Neither may it so expound and explain one place of scripture that it may be repugnant to another. So we've got to make sure 
that we don't grab something, like some people have grabbed this verse, and said, oh, there's no distinction between men and women, where the Bible actually quite clearly teaches in other areas. Now, we can have a conversation about how that works out on the ground. That's an important conversation to have. But this isn't a Bible verse that rubs out distinction. But let's dive back in. We are saved for belonging. We are also saved, Paul goes up a level, for adoption. When the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, let me explain. Roman society, who inherits? The sons inherit. So ladies, Paul is applying this to both men and women within the Christian community. And he's saying that you, through Christ, get the full rights as sons. This is not denying your status as women, but it's an amazing thing. You are fully heirs alongside every other Christian and gender is not a barrier. That's what he's saying. This is a profoundly egalitarian statement. You are heirs of Christ. It's my day for movies. Anyone know what movie this is? This is Ben-Hur. Okay, and if you know the story of Ben-Hur, the guy, the older guy there is Quintus Arius, uh, who is a tribune, and uh, Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston is there, and uh, he's saved Quintus Arius uh, when, uh, when the ship was going down and so forth. And in the story, uh, Quintus Arius adopts Judah Ben-Hur as his son. And you know what this means? It means that when he returns to... Uh, to Palestine, he gets an audience with Pilate as Quintus Arius. He gets the name, he gets the status, he gets the rights, he gets the wealth, adoption. And that is what Paul is saying we have. We're not just saved like Jake Blues and set loose on society. We are saved from and saved for into the family of God, heirs with Christ. And he's poured his spirit into our hearts. He says, because you are sons, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic term that means daddy. It's intimate. It's personal. That is there. And this spirit the spirit of the son cries out from our hearts, Abba, Father. It affirms us. It brings us into the closest personal relationship. It gives us assurance. It gives us conviction. It gives us confidence. And then Paul builds another level on this. Not only do we belong as God's children, not only are we his heirs, it's a logical necessity, we inherit with him. We are no longer slaves, God's children. Since you are children, God has made you an heir, heirs with Christ. Now, this is where I'd love, Paul, to give me some more detail to work with. But this is mind-boggling. What does Christ own? Everything. Everything. And what Paul is saying is because of God's grace through faith, you inherit everything with him. I don't know if that is something that you just go, oh, wow, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> that should blow us away. 
That should blow us away. That we inherit with Christ. What does it mean? Well, it's guaranteed by the Spirit's presence in our life. What does it mean? It means relationship with the Father. So when John records Jesus' last conversation, with the, one of the last conversations with the disciples, I think it actually was with Mary. And he says, I am returning to my Father and your Father. I am returning to my God and your God. It means that we can have confidence before God. We have a relationship with him that is intimate, not formal and distant. We, the spirit cries in our hearts. And Romans 8 says that the spirit cries with our spirits. Abba, Father. It is personal. It is for glory. And it is for rule. John, uh, Charles Wesley, I think, wrote a hymn either John or Charles, one of the two. And uh, I've had Christians not able to sing this line. You might know it. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Do you know know the next line? And claim the crown through Christ my own. Wow. Do you get what you have been saved for? Do you get the privilege that God has lavished upon us? John writes in 1 John 3 verse 1, he says, Behold, gaze upon the manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called sons of God. Heirs with Christ, belonging in his family. We've not just been delivered from judgment. You've been adopted into God's family. So how do we live? Let me just wrap this up. Paul's arguing with the Galatians because he says it's possible to be a son and yet live like a slave. You know the story about the prodigal son. Okay, he says to dad, I want, all your, I want my share of the inheritance. He goes, he squanders it. There's a famine. He ends up feeding pigs. And he wants to eat the pig food. And he's away in this distant country and he thinks, actually to be a hired servant back at home is better than this. So I will go to my father and I will say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I do not deserve to be called your son. Make me as your hired servant. You know what? I think we as Christians sometimes we're happy with the hired servant bit. And it sounds it sounds humble, doesn't it? But can I say it actually sells God short. You're actually ripping God off. Because what the son is saying, he's saying, Dad, I don't think you could ever forgive me. I don't think There's enough mercy, enough grace, enough forgiveness. So I'll be a hired servant. And I'm actually okay with that. You know, he was dead right. He didn't deserve to be a son. But because of the father's love, he never ceased to be one. Even when he was away in the pig pen. He never ceased to be an object of that father's love. 
And so he comes back and the father hugs him. The robe, the ring, the sandals, the feast. We had to celebrate. We had to. We need to own this. Not to puff ourselves up, but it gives us an incredible security, an incredible confidence to face everything this life throws at us because we know that we have an inheritance the world cannot touch. Behold, reflect on it, rejoice in it. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be children of God. Live into the freedom. Now, the Bible tells us that in Christ we are free, but that doesn't mean we're without constraint. It actually means that we are with the right constraint. And the right constraint is to actually be constrained by the love of the Father and to live according to his word. A fish out of water is not free, is it? It's dead. It doesn't go, oh, I've been liberated from the bondage. No, a fish in water is free. A fish free of water is not free. Having the right constraints. And God's word gives us that. Not to earn it, not to obey in order to earn this, but because the Father loves us and we in response love him. That's the right constraint. Pursue the truth of God in his word and it will set us free. And the last thing, we'll get onto this in the next couple of weeks. Our God, our Father is one who blesses, isn't he? And he makes us his children. And we are encouraged, we are exhorted to have the family likeness. Chapter 6, verse 10, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks' time. Paul tells the Galatians to do good to all people. To be blessing them because in Christ, God has blessed us. And I've been reflecting on it this week. And I don't know if you're like me. I tend to walk around, when I'm out in the community, I tend to have my own little bubble. Maybe that's just me. I live within my head and lots of stuff can actually happen around me. And I'm totally oblivious to that. I just walk through, I'm preoccupied with what I'm worried about or what I'm thinking about or what's coming next. And I think God has actually been pushing me. He said, look, Cameron, get out of your bubble. Get out of your zone. Look for opportunities to bless And it's funny, and I don't want to say, look, I'm so holy and righteous, but you know what? I find that as I do that, little things God uses, God prompts me, not heroic things. Pick up the rubbish. Why? Because living in a clean environment is a blessing, isn't it? Simple thing. It's a nothing thing. But being on the front foot proactively seeking to bless. I want to read to you. I've been reading a book called To Change the World. Uh, It's a great book, actually. I'd encourage you. I just want to read you an example this guy gives. He says, And last, but not least, is a woman who rang up and bagged groceries whose sphere of influence, he's talking about 
how wide your blessing can go was only six square feet. Every day she greeted her customers with genuine enthusiasm, remembering customers' names and asking about their families. She would end each conversation by saying that she was going to pray for their family. Over time, this caused problems. For people wanted to get into her aisle, which resulted in large lines. People would wait, though, because they enjoyed being with her, encouraged just by her presence. At her funeral, years after she retired, the church was packed to standing room-only capacity, and she was eulogised again and again by the people she had encouraged for years. You don't need power. You don't need to be someone great. You are someone great because you are a child of God through faith in Christ. And he is a God who blesses. As you go from here, who will you bless? So as Jesus says, you will be heavenly, children of your heavenly father. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege we have that we should be called your children. Not only in your family, but heirs with Christ. Lord, we deserve nothing but judgment. And in Christ, we get brought in, embraced, accepted, welcomed, secure, never to be shut out, never to be turned away. We know that our Father blesses us with every good thing, that he is at work in every circumstance for our good, and for his glory. Lord, let us hold this truth. Let us gaze upon it. Let us glory in it. And let us live it out. Empowered by your spirit. And in response to your grace. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.